Good morning. My name is Pastor Scott, and it's a pleasure and an honor to be with you this morning and open God's Word and hopefully help you to understand something a little bit more clearly so that your walk with Christ would increase. Now, before I begin, um, I do need to apologize for some people that are right over here. Uh, As I was sitting in that front row, I noticed that the gilded edges on my Bible were quite blinding. I'm sorry about that. I'm not going to do anything about it, but I'm sorry that it's blinding you. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or on your electronic devices, go ahead and turn those on as well. And uh, I promise not to think that you're texting during the sermon. I just think it's great that you go ahead and follow along with us. This morning, I've titled the message, Turning the Agony of Defeat into the Thrill of Victory. Now, how many of you know who Vinko Bogachaz is? I didn't think so. That name isn't very familiar to most of us. But for those of you who are my generation or perhaps a little bit older, uh, you may have grown up watching ABC's Wide World of Sports on Saturday afternoons. And for those of you who did, you might remember this introduction to the show by Jim McKay. Let me just get on my radio voice here. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat, the human drama of athletic competition, this is ABC's Wide World of Sports. I missed my calling, didn't I? (laughs) And when Jim McKay would say the agony of defeat, what happened? There was that Olympic ski jumper who wiped out, right? Every week he wiped out. Well, in some ways, uh, that unknown Yugoslavian ski jumper kind of became a celebrity, at least for those of us watching ABC's Wide World of Sports every Saturday afternoon. So in some ways, you might even say that he turned the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory. Now, wouldn't you like to be able to do that in your own life, but in a much more significant and important way? So this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 at the example of Jesus and see how he turned the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory and see how we can do the same thing by following his example. So if you'll look at your Bibles, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 18, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us to understand some of these passages that are difficult to understand and help us to, our lives to be changed through the power of your Spirit in a way that pleases you. Amen. 
I'm going to spend quite a bit of time this morning on some of the details in this passage that are a little bit more difficult to understand. But in order to do that accurately, we have to keep the big picture in mind. So let's start by identifying what Peter's big picture is. That is, when I follow Jesus, he transforms my suffering into triumph in the Spirit. This passage begins a section of Peter's letter to a scattered and distressed church in which he is going to draw some sharp contrast between what we experience most often physically and what we experience uh, spiritually. He's going to use the example of Jesus to make his point. Now, not surprisingly, this entire passage is primarily about Jesus and how he made it possible for us to turn the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory. And that agony of defeat most often for us occurs in the physical realm, but the thrill of victory is in the spiritual realm. So how did Jesus do this? The scripture that we're looking at this morning begins and ends with teaching that is pretty clear. It's that section in between those two clear ideas that's a little bit more difficult to understand. So let's begin with what we can understand clearly and use that to help us make sense of the parts that are more difficult. Through his physical suffering, Jesus purchased my salvation. That's pretty straightforward. That's in the beginning of verse 18. But it's always good to keep things in context. So let's back up one verse and look at verse 17 of this chapter. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then in verse 18, Peter turns to the example of Jesus, who certainly suffered for doing good and not for doing evil. And there are several important facts about Jesus' suffering that Peter summarizes in this first in this first verse that we're looking at. And the first thing is that Jesus suffered once for sins. Unlike the Old Testament sacrificial system in which sacrifices had to be offered over and over again, Jesus' one-time act of dying on the cross is sufficient to cover the sins of all people and for all time. By the way, have you ever wondered, and I asked that question because I did this week, I wondered how many lambs were sacrificed? Well, I got an estimate because the almighty Google told me. Uh, it wasn't for, an, uh, for a year, but for just the Passover time, it's approximated that there were 250,000, a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed every year during Passover. Here's important fact number two. Jesus suffered for sins, but not for his own, but for yours and mine. Since Jesus was 100% sinless, it was not his sins that caused him to suffer, but rather ours. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, this is from the New Living Translation, says, Jesus himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Important fact number three, Jesus took my place. Because I am unrighteous, I deserve to be judged for my sins. But Jesus, who was completely righteous, took that judgment upon himself in my place. In Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Now, to help us understand that, I did find an illustration that I'd like to share with you, and I'm going to be reading this in the first person, but I don't want you to misunderstand. This is not my story. This is a story as told by Curtis Buth. So here it is. Soccer season was starting once again. This year, my tiny 35-pound, five-year-old daughter would be playing micro-league for the Bombers. Can't you just picture that? Micro-league and Bombers. They don't seem to go together, do they? As we walked to the first practice on a cool summer day, I was anxious to see who the coach would be. Would his focus be on making the game fun and a team experience, or would he focus on scoring lots of goals and winning? As practice began, I met Coach Ray. My first impression was that Ray was a good man, and any lingering doubt about that vanished when an odd incident occurred during a practice game. It was the white shirts versus the blue shirts. As they began, a little boy, who we later learned spoke no English, wandered from the playground to the sidelines of the game. He watched, and he waited. And moments later, I looked for him again, but he was gone. Then I noticed there were now 13 bombers running up and down the field. The boy, perfectly camouflaged in his blue shorts and his white T-shirt, had joined the white team. He ran, he passed, he kicked, and he smiled the whole time. No one seemed to notice that he wasn't part of the team. No one yet said, he hasn't paid the fees. The proper forms and releases haven't been signed. Soon, however, a ball rolled into a mother's lap, and as the new boy ran to get it, the mom innocently said to the coach, he's not on the team. The kids who had not even noticed that a new friend was on the field stopped. The coach looked down at the boy, saying, he's not? Hmm. There was a pause as the boy looked up at Coach Ray, who held his soccer fate in his hands, at least on that day, And finally, Coach Ray made his judgment. He put his hand on the boy's back and said, Come on, let's play soccer. And off all 13 bombers ran. Now, let me make the connection for you here. None of us deserve to be on God's team. We haven't earned it. We haven't paid the price, nor could we afford to. Yet in his grace, Jesus chose us to be on the best team in the universe his team. Here's important fact number four about Jesus's suffering. The purpose was to bring me to God. The verb that Peter uses here in the original Greek describes a person who would verify somebody's right to see a king and then escort him into the presence of that king. This is what Jesus has done for us spiritually. He has verified our right to have access to God the Father and then provided the introduction into God's presence. And this was all accomplished by him being put to death on the cross. It's important to note that in his humanity, Jesus was just like us in that he consisted of a body, soul, and spirit. And when the Roman soldiers hung him on the cross, the only part that they could put to death was his body. They couldn't kill his soul or his spirit. From the world's perspective, what happened to Jesus was undoubtedly the agony of defeat, which is why even those who had 
been the closest to Jesus were in despair after his death. But by the time that we get to the end of the passage in verse 22, we see how God had turned that into the thrill of victory. Both physically and spiritually, Jesus proved his triumph through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. Just like it is true with the death of every person, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a separation between his body and his spirit. And just like we will experience in the future when we have a heavenly bodily resurrection at the time of the rapture, when Jesus was resurrected on Easter Sunday, his body and his spirit were then reunited. Through the resurrection, God turned the tremendous suffering that Jesus had experienced physically into a spiritual triumph in which body and spirit were now both alive. And that that triumph was evidenced by the fact that Jesus ascended body, soul, and spirit into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 says, And after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky... This is talking about the disciples. Um, While he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Who do you think those two men in white clothing were? They were angels. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And we're also told that that's where he is now at the right hand of God. Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33 say, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And where God the Father put into subjection all those who had been instruments of his suffering and death. Now, notice in particular that Jesus is now said to be sovereign over angels, authorities, and powers. As we're going to see shortly, that includes the unholy angels, otherwise known as demons, who since creation have been trying to thwart God's plan of bringing his son into the world as the Messiah and as the Savior. So, in our easy-to-understand parts of this passage Peter's teaching is quite clear and is consistent with the main theme that we've already identified is that when I follow Jesus, he transforms my suffering into the triumph in the spirit. Jesus suffered and died, but because he was faithful in fulfilling God's promise and his purpose, God turned that suffering into triumph in the spiritual realm. So the clear implication here is that if I follow Jesus' example and submit myself to God's plan for my life, he's going to do the same thing for me, that he will transform whatever suffering I might experience into a spiritual triumph. He will turn the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory. So with that idea firmly planted in our minds, we're now ready to tackle some of the tougher parts of this passage where we see that in the Spirit... Jesus proclaimed his triumph. That's beginning at the end of verse 18 and going through verse 21. Now, in some of our English Bible translations, the word spirit at the end of verse 18 is translated with a capital S. 
And when you see that, you would automatically think, oh, they must be talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, we can't say for sure whether that's correct or not, since in the New Testament Greek language, there are no capital letters. And so you can only know if it's supposed to be uh, somebody's spirit or the Holy Spirit by looking at the context. So the context here leads me to believe uh, what most Bible commentators say is that the ESV and other uh, translations have correctly translated that word with a lowercase s, which would make it a reference to the human spirit of Jesus. That seems to be consistent with the overall context of the chapter and of Peter's letter that carries over into chapter 4, where Peter is going to continue contrasting the physical and the spiritual. The first thing I'd like us to note about the human spirit of Jesus is that we're told that it was made alive. Now that implies that at some point it was dead. While I can't be dogmatic here, I believe that occurred at the moment when all the sins of all mankind were placed on Jesus. And as a result, there was a separation between Jesus and his Father. That's when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at some point after that, and there's no way to know exactly when or how, Jesus' spirit was made alive again. That idea seems to be supported by the words of Jesus shortly after that on the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it was in his spirit that had been made alive again that Jesus now went and proclaimed something to the spirits in prison according to what we read in verse 19. So we've now arrived at what I believe is the most difficult part of this text, and I'm going to explain it the best way I know how. If you do any study at all on this passage, you will find that there are many men that are much smarter than me who have different opinions on this. But after many hours of study and prayer, I'm going to share what I believe to be the best explanation of what occurred. But we need to answer three questions in doing that. The first question is, to whom did Jesus make this proclamation? The second question is, what did he proclaim? And the third question is, when did he proclaim it? I think we actually have enough information here and in some other Bible passages to have confidence in the answers that I'm going to share with you this morning. So let's tackle those questions one by one. The first question is, to whom did Jesus make his proclamation? Now, the obvious answer is the spirits in prison. But who is Peter referring to when he says the spirits in prison? We have several clues in the text. First, unless accompanied by a further description that would include, uh, indicate otherwise, the word spirits is always used in the New Testament to refer to angels. In fact, when Peter refers to humans in verse 20, citing the eight persons that were saved in the ark, he uses a word that can literally be translated souls, not spirits. So these spirits don't appear to be humans. I think verse 22 also gives support to the idea that Peter is using the word spirit to refer to angels since he focuses on Jesus' authority over angels, authorities, and powers rather than over men after his ascension into heaven. We also know that these spirits are in prison, and the word that's uh, translated prison clearly indicates that it is a physical place 
and not just a state of being. Nowhere else in Scripture are the souls of men described as being imprisoned. I think it's also fair to assume that Peter didn't just throw in this reference to Noah and the time of the flood just for fun. Let me give you a Reader's Digest version of what happened here. We all know that in the days of Noah, there was tremendous wickedness in the world. That's why God chose to judge the world by the flood. Now, there are some differences of opinion on exactly how much wickedness came into the world, but it's clear from the accounts in Genesis that much of that wickedness was furthered by the activity of demonic spirits. And as a result of that activity, God permanently imprisoned those unholy angels, otherwise known as demons, until the day of the Lord, which is sometime still in the future, when at that time they'll be thrown into the lake of fire along with their leader, Satan. Peter describes that process in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the whole world of the ungodly. Now, the word that's translated hell in this passage is a Greek word which is transliterated into English as Tartarus. In classic Greek mythology, Tartarus described the subterranean abyss in which rebellious gods were punished. The word was adopted into Judaism, and it was referred in their culture as a prison of fallen angels. And Jude, in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, also described that by saying, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So I think we can now answer our first question, to whom did Jesus make his proclamation? The answer is to wicked angels, otherwise known as demons, who had previously been imprisoned waiting for their final judgment. So now, question number two, what did Jesus proclaim? Now, before we answer that question, let's eliminate one possibility. There are some people who claim that Jesus was making a proclamation of the gospel to those of Noah's day who had refused to listen to Noah and who were therefore killed in the flood. Now, that would mean that those people who refused God in Noah's day were getting a second chance to put their faith in Jesus. The Roman Catholic idea of purgatory has been developed at least in part based on this verse. However, the Bible is clear that once a person dies, he or she does not get a second chance to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. I could cite a number of scriptures to show that, but I think one is sufficient for this morning, and that is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So if Jesus is not proclaiming the gospel, what is he proclaiming? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, the next chapter, um, he says, For this is why the gospel was preached. And the Greek word that Peter chose specifically refers to the preaching of the gospel. That's in chapter 4. In that verse, the verb 
that is used is the one from which we get our English word evangelism. So in chapter 4, the word that's used is about evangelism. But here in chapter 3, verse 19, Peter uses a completely different verb, one that simply means to make a proclamation or to announce a triumph. With that in mind, I think we can now answer our second question, what did Jesus proclaim? The answer is his victory over sin, death, hell, demons, and Satan. From the moment that they rebelled against God, Satan and his demons had been seeking to destroy the work of Jesus. And as Jesus hung on the cross, bearing the sins of all mankind, and his physical life was crushed out of him, it appeared that they had succeeded. But in the spirit, Jesus goes to these imprisoned demons and he makes the proclamation that he has won, that he has overcome all their evil schemes, and that from now on they will be subject to him. Praise God for that, right? Question number three now is when did Jesus proclaim this? There are certainly some differences of of opinion here. Some people proclaim that This occurred after Jesus was resurrected. Some people say that it was even further than that. It was after the 40 days after the resurrection when he ascended into heaven. And certainly both of those are possibilities. But based on what we've already concluded about Jesus' audience and the nature of his message, it seems to me most likely that this occurred sometime between Jesus' death and his resurrection. Since Peter specifically says that Jesus went in the Spirit to make this proclamation, it seems that it must have taken place after Jesus' Spirit was made alive, but before the resurrection, at which time his body was resurrected. Even if I'm not 100% correct on those details, Peter's main point is still very apparent. Although Jesus suffered in the flesh, he turned the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory over all his enemies. And because Jesus did that, I can be confident that when I follow Jesus, he transforms my suffering into spiritual triumph. The illustration of Noah in this passage confirms this idea. Noah and his family spent 120 years not only building the ark, but proclaiming that there was a coming judgment and how to avoid that. In 2 Peter 2.5, it says, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, that was Noah's family, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, when he, meaning God, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So it was during that time that Noah was a herald of righteousness. And as a result, Noah and his family were subjected to scorn and persecution because, uh, from their peers and possibly even from extended family. They suffered and were persecuted for 120 years. But then when the rains came and the fountains of the deep burst forth, God saved Noah and his family as they took refuge in the ark, the instrument of God's salvation from the flood. The same floodwaters that destroyed the rest of the world actually lifted Noah and his family to safety. And then that brings us to verse 21, which is another difficult part of the text. It reads, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, this passage has been used by some people to incorrectly teach the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. That's just a fancy way of saying that the physical act of baptism is necessary for salvation to occur. As I pointed out at the beginning of this message, in dealing with a difficult text like this, we need to make sure that we interpret them in light of clear teaching of Scripture in other parts of the Bible. In other words, if you read this verse and believe that God is saying 1 plus 1 equals 4, but in every other part of the Bible God says 1 plus 1 equals 2, then we must be interpreting this passage incorrectly. So the Bible is consistently clear that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus, and there's nothing that we can do to procure our salvation, including baptism. So with that in mind, why would Peter write here that baptism now saves you? To answer that question fully would require another sermon, which I don't think you're willing to sit through at this point. But let me share briefly one of the many answers to that question. Our English word baptism is a transliteration and not a translation of a Greek word. Now that may not have made it any more clear for you, so let me just back up a step. A translation tells you the meaning of a word in another language. A transliteration doesn't tell you the meaning of the words, but it helps you pronounce the word. In our example, a transliteration of baptism simply changes the word from the Greek alphabet and the Greek language into our Latin alphabet and our English language. The translation of the Greek word simply means immersion. So the word has a far broader meaning than just a spiritual sense of water baptism. In fact, given the context, I'm confident that Peter uses the word baptism here in much the same way that Paul uses it in Galatians 3.27, where it says, And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. And just to make sure that there is no misunderstanding, as soon as Peter writes that a person is saved by baptism, he immediately adds the disclaimer that he's not writing about a physical act. The way that baptism into Christ corresponds to Noah and his family is that they were preserved through the flood by placing their faith in God's provision of an ark. The same way that we are saved by placing our faith in God's provision of Jesus. Notice that Noah and his family were saved through the water and not by the water. In fact, let me ask you a question. How much water actually touched Noah and his family? Not a drop, right? The water only saved them because they were in the ark that God had provided for them. And the same is true of our baptism. We are not saved by the water, but rather we are saved as we choose to be in Christ through our faith in him. That does not mean, however, that baptism isn't important. In fact, I think the reason that Peter even brings this up is because as Christians in that culture in that day gave witness of their faith in Jesus when they were baptized, they were suffering persecution 
for that, for being baptized. So Peter is encouraging them by reminding them that Jesus' suffering in the flesh did not minimize his witness, but rather it enhanced it. So Jesus, or so Peter is urging them to bear witness of Jesus' saving grace, even if that resulted in their persecution. Peter's mention of baptism here is merely for the purpose of reinforcing the principle that is at the heart of this passage, that when I follow Jesus, he transforms my suffering into spiritual triumph. Many of you this morning may feel a lot like Vinko Bogachev, that day that he skidded off the ski jump and suffered the agony of defeat. In your life, you're experiencing all kinds of suffering and your life is very difficult. But the good news is that when we take refuge in Jesus, like Noah and his family took refuge in the ark, God will save us through the stormy waters. He will turn the agony of defeat into the thrill of victory so that we can experience both now and for eternity that thrill of living in the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, it has been a difficult passage, but you have given us examples throughout it to help us understand. Father, help us to understand that our suffering has a purpose, and that purpose is to give us victory in the Spirit. That even if we are suffering for doing good, it shows those around us what is most important. So, Father, thank you for helping us to understand this passage. Help us to live as if we do. In Jesus' name, amen.